Section 16 of Finland and the Tsars, 1809-1899 by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair. Chapter 14a The Reply to the Tsar, Part 1 Such being the Russian view of the military service question, we are now in a position to follow the line taken by the Diet in its humble reply to the Tsar's proposals. The documents submitted to the estates, and by them passed on to the two committees for report, were five in all. An imperial proposition for a military service law for the Grand Duchy of Finland, a scheme for the organisation and administration of the Finnish army, two communications from the Russian Minister of War concerning the circumstances under which the military service law of 1878 was passed, and a proposal for a new form of oath for the Finnish army. As these documents related to the same subject, they were considered together by the committees, and at the outset of their reply, attention was directed to the irregularity of form by which, for the first time in the case of a proposed law, the Diet is asked simply for its opinion on propositions to be submitted afterwards to a Russian authority for revision before receiving the Tsar's sanction. It is pointed out as self-evident that the authority by which the estates are now called upon to join in the preparation of a military service law depends exclusively on the provisions of the fundamental laws of the country. And what those laws were, and their bearing on the subject, had been definitely settled in the case of the military service law of 1878. When that law was to be introduced, it is clear from the official documents connected with it that there was not a thought of such a possibility as issuing, without the consent of the estates, of a law involving important alterations both in the fundamental laws and in the general law of the land. That law was sanctioned by the Emperor and Grand Duke, in literal conformity with the law passed by the estates, after having considered the gracious proposition to that effect. It follows that in proposing any alteration of that law, a similar procedure must be adopted. That this is so has been acknowledged on each of the occasions when it was found necessary even slightly to modify or amend that law. Still more is it necessary to observe constitutional procedure at a juncture when it is proposed to alter the law so completely that it would virtually become a new statute, essentially differing in many respects from that of 1878. The estates, therefore, decline simply to report their opinion on a proposition of such importance. The Diet was, however, quite willing to consider in proper constitutional form the important question raised in the proposed law, namely, whether Finland's present military contribution can be regarded as corresponding to the demands that may justly be made of her for the defence of the common interests of the Russian Empire. Finland has never been backward in this respect. When in 1877 Alexander II, in proposing the adoption of the principle of general obligatory military service, asked simply for an army of 5,000 men on a peace footing, the estates went further and introduced into the measure the stipulation for 90 days military training for all those who, by the fortune of the ballot, were not called upon to serve with the colours but passed direct into the reserves. It is admitted, however, that even with this training, the reserve, as at present organised, although very numerous, is not, properly speaking, efficient or fit to take its place with regular troops, if called out for that purpose. And if this militia-like body is left out of consideration, the military forces maintained by Finland in times of peace are relatively not in proportion to the army maintained by the Empire, and the same applies to the contingent that would be forthcoming in time of war. The Diet agrees, therefore, that it is a correct and natural thing to desire to bring the share of the burden of defence that falls on the Finnish people into greater conformity with that that falls on the Russian people. There should, therefore, be carried through gradually such a considerable increase of the Finnish forces as will bring about something resembling equality, alike in the political and financial burden between Finland and Russia. It is also obviously desirable, 
in order to ensure the necessary cooperation with Russian forces during military operations, that no appreciable difference should exist between the two armies with respect to military instruction and organisation. As a matter of fact, however, the exigencies of uniformity in this respect are already admitted. The circumstance that the Minister of War for Russia has command in all purely military matters of the Finnish army is a sufficient guarantee that the unity required in the management of the military affairs of the whole empire will be observed. But if in the course of the revision of the law it should appear that any matters not now coming within the resort of the Minister of War could be better dealt with in that way, the necessary modification can be made in the new statute. As regards the Russian proposal to extend the time of active service from three years to five, this does not seem necessary, since the time at present spent with the colours has proved to be sufficient to impart to the Finnish troops the proper training. To fix a prolonged term of service, besides being unnecessary, would in many respects have serious economic consequences for the country. The reorganisation of the reserves is, however, another matter. It is clear that the present conditions of service do not ensure so efficient a reserve as does the Russian system, and the estates accordingly regarded as a necessary reform that the reserve should be reorganised and placed on a basis corresponding to that in force in the empire. That is to say, that the reserve should consist, as in Russia, only of troops who have served in the active army and further, that it should be so graded that a sufficient number of trained soldiers of proper age should be at the disposal of the authorities in case the Finnish army were to be called on to take part in a great campaign outside the frontiers of its own country. This latter is a point on which there has been some misunderstanding. The Finnish Diet has never laid it down as a principle that under no circumstances should Finnish troops be employed out of Finland although their primary object naturally has been the defence of the Grand Duchy. When general military service was first introduced into a country where, for centuries, military service had been based on voluntary enlistment, it was natural that both the Emperor and the Estates should wish to make the burden as light as possible at first, and confine the task of the new conscript army in such a way as would ensure that the new order of things should be sustained by public opinion. But since the law, after having been in operation for twenty years, is now the object of revision, the Diet recognised the obligations of Finland in regard to the defence of the whole empire. Even in Russia, where universal service was introduced in 1874, it was found necessary to take into consideration the social conditions existing in different parts of the country, and to accommodate this system to the circumstances with which it came into contact, and various separate statutes were issued applying only to certain territories. The same principle was followed some years later in preparing the present military service law for Finland. The Russian model was followed in all cases where that could be done with advantage, but there was no hesitation in making the Finnish law in several respects different from the Russian, where this was considered necessary to efficiency. It would be giving up the results of all this experience if they were now to make the Finnish military service law a mere copy of the law existing in Russia. The two systems now correspond in so far that they are both adapted to the real conditions of life to which they apply. To create at this period identical laws to apply in conditions that are so widely different would be to bring about a mechanical uniformity that would really injure and set back the interests of military efficiency in Finland, and therefore be injurious to the empire. Partial alterations of the law of 1878 have been made as experience indicated their necessity, and, as has already been said, further modifications are now desirable, but such alterations should be confined to such portions of the law as are really in need of amendment. To upset provisions of the law that have worked satisfactorily, and are based on sound and well-tried principles, would not in the opinion of the estates be a rational mode of proceeding. How widely the aims and methods that prevailed in the elaboration of the propositions for a new law now placed before the Diet vary from the principles just laid down, will be clear from the terms of those propositions.
and of the papers accompanying them. These proposals, for instance, make no distinction between those portions of the law of 1878, which are essentially constitutional, and whose validity and importance must be maintained whatever military modifications may be introduced, and those others which, although declared fundamental, refer exclusively to the conscription and the general organization of the army, and would naturally come up for reconsideration. The proposals delivered to the estates do not, however, confine themselves simply to the alteration of the military provisions of the law. They aim at the total repeal of the clauses containing constitutional guarantees. In addition to that, new regulations are proposed, which, on account partly of their form and partly of their tendency, are incompatible with the legal position of the Grand Duchy. Occasion is taken in bringing forward these proposals to attack or to dispute, sometimes in an offensive way, the rights that have since the year 1809 been solemnly guaranteed to the Finnish people by the sovereigns of Russia. In the carrying out of these tendencies, several proposals are made whose object is to bring about a forced uniformity between the Finnish and the Russian military system. Thus the Finnish forces may be transported, even in time of peace, to any part of Russia. Natives of Russia may be conscripted for service in the Finnish army. Russians may serve as officers in the Finnish army. The affairs of the Finnish army, even the financial administration, is to be managed by Russian district military authorities, and so forth. Just and reasonable principles are thus made to yield to the new political tendencies. The clearest proof of this is afforded by the fact that it is proposed that in the future the abridgment of the period of service on the ground of superior education shall be granted only on the presentation of a certificate of knowledge of Russian. Thus military service is to be used as a means of forcing on Finland a knowledge of the Russian language, and young men of education would be placed in a more unfavourable position in Finland than in the empire. The estates have no wish to depreciate the value of a knowledge of Russian. It is agreed that for the Finnish military staff, for example, and for the holders of certain administrative positions, it is indispensable. But it is impossible altogether to disregard the fact that the inhabitants of Finland and of Russia belong to entirely different races. The mass of the people, whether Finnish-speaking or Swedish-speaking, are not likely to learn any language other than their mother tongue. For those who devote themselves to public affairs, or move in some more extensive field of work, a knowledge of both languages is absolutely necessary. To add to these, in addition to the ordinary courses of study, a compulsory knowledge of the Russian language for everyone who wishes to secure an exemption from a portion of the term of military service would create a feeling of injustice and make military service unpopular throughout the country. Military service is not a matter of choice. It is a duty imposed upon every citizen, and the Finnish people would certainly regard the new proposals as a violent attempt to interfere with and alter the national language and the national character. Attention is also directed to the use that is frequently made in the explanations issued by the Russian general staff of the words fatherland and patriotism. The opinion indicated is that the Finns are simply a number of Russian subjects settled in certain Russian provinces forming one of the borderlands of the empire. Finland is their native place, but the Russian Empire is their fatherland, and the same mode of thinking is also reflected in Clause 1 of the proposed military service law. Patriotism, however, has at all times had its definition fixed by natural and historical circumstances, which cannot be altered by any peremptory measures, and in consequence of those circumstances, Finland is the fatherland of the Finns. But since Finland is inseparably united with the Russian Empire, and forms with it an international unit, the duty of defending the fatherland can never be performed by the people of Finland, otherwise than by a participation in the defence of the whole empire, whether the fighting takes place within the borders of Finland or beyond them. At the same time, Finland's modest contribution to the defence of the monarch and empire will not be less effective when, as heretofore, it remains a constituent part of the institutions of its own country and is not forcibly and contrary to existing rights, amalgamated with the Russian army. 
The existing military service law was drawn up in strict conformity with the well-established Finnish system of legislation. It formed a complete code dealing with such matters relating to the army as can only be legislated upon by the united decision of the monarch and the estates. But it did not comprehend matters on which the monarch has the right of legislating, independent of the diet, by means of the so-called administrative ordinances. It is by such ordinances that the whole of the arrangements necessary for the carrying out in detail of the military law are effected. This bilateral system, which safeguards the privileges of the nation whilst leaving to the governing power the liberty of action necessary for the development of administrative requirements, has also been ignored in the preparation of the proposed law, in which matters of detail proper to be dealt with administratively are embodied along with the legislation such as should be embodied in a law passed by the Diet. Consequently, if the whole of this law were to be accepted by the Estates and sanctioned by the Emperor, not a single paragraph in it could be altered in future without the consent of the Estates, thus actually restricting in many respects His Majesty's present power of legislating by ordinance. On the other hand, it would be a flagrant violation of the fundamental laws of Finland if, because the proposed new law contains certain administrative details, it were to be treated as a matter that could be decided without the cooperation of the estates. The second proposal, that for the organisation and administration of the army, suffers from the same faults as those pointed out in the proposed military service law. The greater part of it is composed, it is true, of administrative regulations, but it contains, in addition, several stipulations which are in opposition either to the existing military law or to the general fundamental laws of Finland, and which, therefore, cannot be issued in such an administrative act as that which seems to be proposed. Objectionable in the highest degree, moreover, is the practice which recurs several times in this proposal of referring in an ordinance intended to become valid in Finland to Russian laws which have no validity whatever in the Grand Duchy. In consideration of all these things, the estates unanimously resolve that these proposals do not simply aim at the reform of the military system of Finland, but involve political aims, the realisation of which would gravely infringe upon Finland's constitutional position, and would entail the most ruinous consequences for the country and for its future development that the alterations insisted upon in the proposals are not justified by the obligations that are incumbent upon Finland in virtue of its position in the Russian Empire, and that legitimate claims can be satisfied without such alterations, so much the more easily since there already exists in principle a uniformity between the Finnish and the Russian armies in all matters, that are important from a military point of view. That the proposals lack that regard for and adherence to existing law which is essential if the new law is to be built on a sure foundation, besides which the object in view, the establishment of uniformity with Russian law, has excluded all consideration for the differences that exist both in national and social respects, between Finland and Russia. That the proposals do not pay regard to the existing forms for legislation in Finland, nor to the system according to which laws and administrative ordinances must be distinguished from each other. That therefore it is not possible for the estates, as the representatives of the Finnish nation, to accept these proposals. The Diet did not, however, think it right simply to negative the imperial proposals in a matter in which it was admitted that reform was necessary. And in order to render possible the carrying out of these reforms, the estates proceeded to examine the existing law clause by clause, inserting such amendments as seemed best calculated whilst paying due observance to the fundamental laws of Finland, to carry out His Majesty's wishes and to bring about such development in the conscription system as would correspond with the altered circumstances. The Diet, in fact, rejected the proposal made on the basis of the claims of the Russian War Office, and substituted a counter-proposal of its own.
The first clause is so worded as to make it clear that every citizen of Finland is liable to the compulsory military service for the defence of the throne, the fatherland, and the Russian Empire. Instead of, as formerly, simply for the defence of the throne and the fatherland, the Russian proposal had been to leave out fatherland altogether and insert Russian Empire in its place. But even General Kuropatkin can hardly object to the mention of his own country among the objects of the Finlanders' guardianship. It is proposed also to do away with the last remnants of the old Indelta system, now quite useless, and landowners are expressly freed from all future obligations in that direction. In future, the army is to consist, like that of the Empire, of two classes, Standing Army and Landwehr, the Standing Army being composed of Active Army and Reserves. A Finnish subject is to do duty only in the Finnish army. This has been the law ever since Finland was joined to Russia, and the estates adhere to it. It is fundamental, and any alteration of it would involve a severe encroachment on the secured rights of Finnish subjects. The legal and constitutional grounds on which the Finnish contention rests are incontestable, and it is argued further that on the grounds of military efficiency any change would be for the worse. Finnish lads placed compulsorily in a Russian regiment would find themselves in strange surroundings. They would not understand the language of either their officers or their comrades. The necessary difference in customs, temperament and ideas would also contribute to make the young Finns, even if they were kindly treated, feel like strangers. Through no fault of their own, they would necessarily, for these reasons, try the patience of the officers by being slow to understand explanations and orders at drill, or in barracks. The result would be backwardsness, reproof, punishment, and their situation would soon become unbearable. Their education in civil and religious duties, which is made a feature of in the Finnish army, would naturally be at an end when the recruits were placed among men differing from them in tongue and in religion. The estates lay emphasis on these points, because it is known that a committee appointed by the Russian general staff has been charged with preparing a proposal for the placing of Finnish conscripts in Russian regiments. They have probably not taken into consideration the actual facts, or the important circumstances put forward by the estates, nor are they cognizant of the strength of national feeling in Finland. It is not by slighting such feelings, or ignoring such considerations, that the empire will get the most benefit out of the Finnish conscripts. It is also pointed out that emigration has shown an extraordinary increase during the past few months, in spite of a generally prosperous year, and inquiries have shown that this increased emigration has chiefly been caused by the misgivings that have been awakened by the mere rumours that Finnish conscripts would have to serve in the Russian army. For all these reasons, the estates consider that in the interest of their military efficiency, as well as their own welfare, the new law should contain an explicit statement to the effect that Finnish citizens shall serve only with Finnish troops, and they have accordingly inserted a subsection to that effect. As regards the proposal to extend the time of active service from three to five years, the estates point out that in France, Germany, Austria, Italy, and other European countries, the time of service with the colours is from two to three years and that there seems no reason for extending it in Finland, especially as a conscript can be made completely efficient in the shorter time. Still less necessary is the proposal to extend the time of service in the reserves to not less than 13 years, making a total of 18 years with the standing army. The counter-proposal is that total service should be 10 years, 3 with the active army and 7 in the reserves, the present reserve composed of men who have not passed through the active army being abolished. At present, the army on a peace footing amounts to 5,821 men, 220 volunteers included, and on a war footing to 15,088, of whom 3,486 form the depot troops. The number of men thus required to join in order to bring up the peace footing to a war footing is 9,267. The duty of a reserve is to supply this number, to fill vacancies in the ranks, and eventually to form reserve battalions. Making allowance for wastage of various sorts, it is calculated that seven classes of reserves 
representing the seven years of service, would supply all that is required. After serving his time in the standing army, active and reserve, the soldier passes into the landwehr. The diet proposes to make such alterations in the landwehr as are necessary to fit in with the alterations in the reserve system. Those conscripts who, owing to the fortunes of the ballot, have not been called on to serve in the active army, will immediately be transferred to the landwehr instead of to the reserves as provided by the present law. At present, men are included in the landwehr till the age of 40. The Russian proposal would extend this period to 43 years, as there seems no reason why men in Finland should be discharged from their duty three years sooner than in Russia, the Diet accepts this extension. The question of the extent of the service to be required of the Landwehr men is also raised. It has been objected in Russia that at present the Landwehr may be called out only in case of a hostile invasion of the country. The objection is reasonable, as it is obvious that in some cases, at least, the summoning of the Landwehr would then be too late, especially in the case of men who would require a considerable amount of training to fit them for service. The Diet accepts the proposition in accordance with which the clause would be worded so as to read that the Landwehr may be called out only on extraordinary occasions and in time of actual war. If, in the case of war, the reserve should prove insufficient for filling up the ranks in active service, the younger classes of the Landwehr may be called on to make good the deficiency. End of section 16section 17 of Finland and the Tsars 1809-1899 by Joseph Robert Fisher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Alistair. Chapter 14b. The Reply to the Tsar, Part 2. A considerable space in the Diet's reply is occupied with a discussion of the command of the Finnish army it is in connection with the wording of the section governing this matter in the Act of 1878 that the War Minister made his extraordinary charge against the Finnish Diet in his memorandum of January 15, 24, 1899. The discovery made by General Kuropatkin is that the clause as enacted has not the same wording as that which His Imperial Majesty Alexander II had himself given to the said article, when a proposal for a gracious proposition concerning the institution of compulsory service in Finland was submitted to the consideration of the Emperor. The statement is quite true. The only wonder is that the Russian war minister, at the very moment when, most of all, he wishes to deny the right of the Finnish estate to legislate with regard to the army, should himself have been so misguided as to direct attention to an incident clearly proving that the estates possessed that very right, and exercised it with the consent of the Emperor at the time of the passing of the last Military Service Act. The facts are very simple, and are all on record. The original proposition was worded as follows. The Governor-General of the Grand Duchy of Finland, commanding the troops in the Finnish military district, is at the same time commander of the Finnish troops. As altered by the estates and sanctioned by the emperor, the clause runs, The governor-general of the Grand Duchy of Finland, who likewise commands the Russian troops which may be stationed in the country, is the commander of the Finnish army. The motive of the change is obvious. The Finlanders, jealous of any attempt to attenuate their position as a self-governing Grand Duchy into that of either a civil province or a military district of the Russian Empire, altered troops in the Finnish military district into Russian troops which may be stationed in the country, and for Finnish troops substituted Finnish army. There was nothing underhand or evasive about the matter. It was done in the usual constitutional form recognised by the law, and invariably practised. The emperor, through the senate, made his gracious propositions, and the estates drew up and forwarded their humble reply. And in that reply they pointed out, as usual, the alterations they had made in the proposition, and stated their reasons. The estates, they said in 1877, 
except the principle laid down in section 127, 119, to the effect that the command of the Finnish troops pertains to the Governor-General, but they find it necessary to alter the wording of this part of the paragraph. For this alteration it is not necessary to give any further reasons than that the term Finnish military district, which can scarcely be allowed in a Finnish law, refers to an existing military distribution in countries subject to your majesty's sceptre, the alteration or annulling of which cannot be dependent on this military service law. This is neatly put, and no doubt the Russian military authorities duly appreciated the zeal of the Finnish theat, the integrity of the imperial prerogative. But there need be little doubt that the real objection was to the use in the Finnish statute of the phrase Finnish military district. General Kuropatkin, who knew nothing of the humble reply, or of parliamentary procedure of any sort, and imagines he has discovered another Finnish forgery, like those alleged by Monsieur Auden, points out this divergence between the draft and the law, and argues that if the estates wanted any change made, they ought to have petitioned for an alteration of the wording, alleging that they had acted contrary to the natural mode of procedure in altering it for themselves. The estates had no difficulty in pointing out that, according to the fundamental laws, they have always possessed the right not only to accept or to reject a proposition for a new law submitted to them, but also to declare their acceptance, subject to an alteration in the wording, approved by them, and that it then depends on the monarch to either assent to the change or to let the proposition lapse. The war minister further objects that, whereas the amendment pretends merely to be an alteration in the wording, it is really fundamental, because it concerns the authority of the minister of war, and that the alteration was not brought to the notice of General Milyutin, the then minister of war, as it ought to have been. If this were true, it might be held to imply a censure on General Milyutin's secretaries of twenty years ago for not keeping their chief posted in what was going on, but it is surely hard to hold the Finnish diet responsible. As a matter of fact, the whole story is an invention. The records show that General Milyutin applied for and received from the office of the Secretary of State for Finland a copy of the original proposal for the express purpose of comparing it with the law as adopted and that he made no objection. The question was raised and settled in 1877-78, in full legal and constitutional form, and should now be allowed to rest. The Diet, therefore, regret to observe that in the present proposed laws the words Finnish military district are again introduced, and that in Article 10 of the proposed ordinances it is stated that the highest local administration of the Finnish troops, authorities, establishments and institutions rests with the commander-in-chief of the Finnish military district. When the duties of the Finnish military district are entrusted to the Governor-General of Finland, the highest local administration of those troops, authorities, establishments and institutions also devolves upon him. The Diet cannot assent to such an article, and proposes that the clause shall simply run, The Governor-General of Finland is commander-in-chief of the Finnish troops, unless the Emperor and Grand Duke shall appoint some other person to the office. It is clear from this and other proposals that part of the object of the proposals of the Russian General Staff is to abolish altogether the present institutions of the Finnish military system. At present, the Finnish army is under the Governor-General and a Finnish commander with a Finnish staff, medical administration, comptroller, and so forth. But if a single Russian officer in his capacity of commander-in-chief of the Finnish military district were placed in control of the highest local administration of the Finnish troops, authorities, establishments, and institutions, there would soon be an end of all that, in spite of the clear provision of the law of 1878, which enacted, in the very words proposed by the Emperor Alexander II himself, that the officers, as well as the civil officials of the Finnish army, shall consist of Finnish citizens. This clause, carrying out as it does the guarantees given by Alexander I at Borgo in 1809, is the basis on which the whole military administration of Finland was organised. It is one of the clauses expressly declared to be fundamental, and to attempt to alter it by ordinance would be a flagrant violation of the constitution.
The Diet claims no right, and has never done so, to take part in deciding the way in which the Finnish military organisation is to be carried on, except so far as is permitted by the military service law itself. But in view of the attempts that are being made to change the character of the Finnish army, they make a formal declaration to the effect that the estates, as representatives of the Finnish people, consider it their duty to adhere to the country's right to its own peculiar administration, as based on its constitution, and therefore they cannot consent to any alteration of section 120 of the military service law, or of the consequent principle that the authorities established for the military, sanitary, and economic administration of the Finnish army cannot be incorporated with or subordinated to the authorities of the Russian military district command, or otherwise altered in such a manner that they should cease to be the Finnish authorities subject to Finnish laws. Similarly strenuous objection is offered to the proposal that Russian officers may receive commissions in the Finnish army. The proposed article provides that the body of officers attached to these troops shall be completed by persons born in the Finnish provinces, as well as in other parts of the empire. This wording, which ignores the very existence of the Grand Duchy of Finland, together with the explanations attached to the scheme, affords another proof of the political tendencies by which the War Office Committee, charged with preparing the government proposals, was inspired. The Diet does not wish to follow up the controversy as to the various inaccuracies in fact and in law involved in the explanations forwarded by the Committee of the Russian General Staff, but it cannot help expressing its regret that the Committee should speak of the Finnish Subjects Clause of the Act of 1878, a clause which, as has been seen, was proposed by the Emperor Alexander II himself as offensive to Russian national feeling. It has been argued that the present state of affairs by which Russians cannot become officers in the Finnish army, whilst many Finns serve as officers in the Russian army, is opposed to the principles of reciprocity. But a Finnish officer entering the Russian army becomes subject to all the conditions as to language, etc., of the Russian service. He is specially trained for the purpose, and becomes, from the point of view of military duty, practically a Russian. The number of Finnish officers in the imperial service never exceeds 1% of the whole body of imperial officers. It would be very different with Russian officers in the Finnish army, if once the policy of unification were to set in. They would bring their language and other qualities, and they would come in such numbers as to entirely swamp the Finnish element. In fact, the proposal taken in connection with the political tendencies already referred to can only be regarded as another step in the direction of the desired denationalization of Finland. The estates cannot but resist such a tendency and hold fast to a clause which they regard as one of the most important conditions for the maintenance of the constitution of Finland. After pointing out that no alteration in the mode of organising and officering the Finnish active army can be called for on the ground of lack of efficiency, since their good discipline and soldierly qualities have been repeatedly praised by the inspecting officers and by the Tsar himself, the estates proceed to a very interesting discussion of the Finnish national character in connection with army service, with the object of showing that any change in the direction of Russification would be injurious both to discipline and efficiency. The youth of Finland, it is claimed, possess many of the special qualities which go to the making of good soldiers, but it must not be overlooked that there belongs also to the Finnish national character a certain taciturnity and a reserved and sometimes unyielding disposition. The result of the continuous struggle of the people for centuries with many trials and much suffering. This renders it necessary that the control and education of lads called to the military service should be in the hands of people fully acquainted with their language, customs, and idiosyncrasies, otherwise, the process of instruction would be painful. Unavoidable misunderstandings would lead to faults on the part of the soldiers, in dealing with which faults, again, the Russian officers might without intending it, proceed in such a way as to make matters worse. Nor can the efficiency of the Finnish officers be questioned. They all, without exception, speak the Russian language, they receive the same education as the Russian officers, 
and they are kept fully conversant with the service and the circumstances of the Imperial Army, so as to be fully prepared for common action with Russian troops in manoeuvres or in war. And the Finnish conscripts themselves, in virtue of the qualities mentioned, would certainly better endure hardship and face danger on the field of battle, if the strong tie of a common nationality united them to their officers. Coming to the question of the strength of the Finnish army on a peace footing, the estates point out that the figure agreed upon in 1878, namely 5,000 men, was not laid down as a fixed and unalterable standard, but simply as one suited to the circumstances of the country at that time, and capable of alteration as the development of the resources and population of the country should warrant. The Finnish committee in St. Petersburg agreed with the Senate in this matter, and approved of the number agreed upon on the express ground that as set forth by the Minister of War, it by no means follows that the number of the Finnish army should always and unalterably remain at a fixed peace strength of 5,000 men, but that this number could, in proportion to the resources and with the consent of the estates, be augmented. The fixing upon that number did not, as a matter of fact, prevent its being increased when, in 1889, it was decided to raise a regiment of dragoons, the estates readily agreeing to the necessary amendment of section 121. Another of the numerous misrepresentations made to the emperor by the Russian general staff refers to this clause, which in one of its subsections directs that the distribution of the troops should be determined by the emperor and grand duke upon representation of the senate. In its explanations, the Russian committee informed the Tsar that the estates extended their claims, even to the length of considering that the question of the distribution of the troops ought to rest with the Senate. Although the text before them expressly states that the decision rests with the Emperor, acting, on general principles, naturally on the advice of the Senate, which was the governing body of the country appointed by himself. Such representations do not in the least interfere with the Emperor's right, on the advice of the War Minister, to control the movements of the troops in manoeuvres or in time of war. In the present propositions there is no clause fixing the number of the active army in time of peace, although it is clear that a large increase is intended. The object seems to be to take the matter entirely out of the hands of the Diet, and to invalidate altogether section 121 of the present law, in which the number is fixed. The estates cannot, of course, agree to such a proposal. The Diet fully recognises, as has already been said in this report, that a considerable increase in the force at present fixed on, as the peace footing, is desirable. At the same time, the estates cannot admit that the increase should be such as to bring the Finnish army up to the same proportion to population as exists in the case of the Russian army. The political arrangements of Russia have for two centuries been specially directed to the problem of procuring sufficient funds for the maintenance of a mighty army, as a means of attaining great political aims. And the fact that the finances of the empire, notwithstanding such sacrifices, have been brought into such excellent condition, is itself a proof of the vastness of the economic resources of every description which exist in Russia. Altogether different is the situation of Finland. The fact that since 1809, Finland has been assured in the possession of peace, and has had to bear only a small burden for the defence of the country, has made it possible for that country to make a gratifying progress in material well-being, in spite of a barren soil and an ungenial climate. Grateful for the privileges conferred on them up till now, the Finnish people cannot, it is true, think of demanding that they shall be indefinitely favoured to the same extent when sacrifices for national defence are required. The estates are, however, of the opinion that any attempt to apply a hard and fast mathematical standard would, in view of the inferior natural resources of Finland, result not in equality, but in inequality and injustice. The Russian army on a peace footing stands in a proportion of about 7.8 per thousand of the population. If this proportion were to be extended to Finland, it would mean a peace footing of about 20,000 men. To maintain so great a force would be ruinous to the country, 
and the scarcity of labour, already severely felt, would increase to such a degree as to threaten agricultural and industrial disaster. After giving every consideration to the question of the extent of increase that could be borne by Finland, the estates arrived at the conclusion that the number of men on a peace footing could not be raised to more than 12,000. This means more than doubling the present army on a peace footing, and such an increase should be introduced gradually over a period of at least nine years, and an essential condition of such an added burden would be that the present customs tariff should not be subjected to any great alteration, as otherwise great economic and financial difficulties would result. And it is of the utmost importance that the development of the country should be allowed to proceed as hitherto under the protection of steady and unvarying economic laws. It is a little difficult to make anything like a valid comparison between the suggestion made above by the Finnish Diet and the demands of the Russian General Staff Committee. The Diet offers an increase amounting to rather more than a doubling of the peace footing of the army, the total to be attained by yearly increments spread over a period of at least nine years, and, while making no estimate of the financial burden involved in this, it lays down a condition that the Finnish revenue shall not be violently disarranged in the interval by any serious interference with the customs tariff. The Russian scheme, on the other hand, mentions no total, either for a war or for a peace footing, advises a yearly increment at an increasing ratio spread over ten years, and it is suggested that the money could easily be found by an all-round increase in the customs tariff, so as to equalise it with that prevailing in Russia, a method of raising revenue not at all approved by the Finnish financiers. The Russian estimate is accompanied by a series of tables showing that, on an average of the last five years, only 9.6% of the young men in Finland attaining the age for service are called on to join the active army, whilst in Russia 36% are called on. The present annual contingent averages 1,920, who serve in Finland for three years, the total arms amounting to 5,821. It is proposed to leave unchanged the contingent left to serve in Finland, although apparently the total peace footing would be increased owing to the extension of the number of years of service, but to steadily raise the number of conscripts each year's increase being drafted to do their service in the Russian army. This particular table is in five columns, showing the year, the number of fresh conscripts called, the percentage, the number drafted off to Russia, and the amount of money that Finland, in addition to maintaining her own army, would be called on to pay over to Russia for their support. Table begins. The table ends at approximately 24 minutes, 25 seconds. 1899. Contingent of 1,920. 9.6%. No contribution to the Russian army. No contribution to the Russian treasury in Finnish marks. 1900. Contingent of 2,460, 12.3%. Contribution to the Russian army of 540. No contribution to the Russian treasury in Finnish marks. 1901. Contingent of 3,000, 15%. Contribution to the Russian army of 1,080, 1,121,296 Finnish marks. 1902. Contingent of 3,540, 17.7%. Contribution to the Russian army of 1,620, 2,242,592 Finnish marks. 1903. Contingent of 4,080, 20.4%. Contribution to the Russian army of 2,160, 3,363,000. 888 Finnish marks. 1904. Contingent of 4,620. 23.1%. Contribution to the Russian army of 2,700. 4,485,184 Finnish marks. 1905. Contingent of 5,160. 25.8%. Contribution to the Russian army 
of 3,240, 5,606,480 finish marks. 1906, contingent of 5,700, 28.5%, contribution to the ration army of 3,780, 6,727,776 finish marks. 1907, contingent of 6,200, 31.0%, contribution to the Russian army of 4,280, 7,849,072 Finnish marks. 1908, contingent of 6,700, 33.5%, contribution to the Russian army of 4,780, 8,970,368 Finnish marks. 1909, contingent of 7,200, 36%, contribution to the Russian army of 5,280, 10,091,664 Finnish marks. End of table. Finland, in fact, offers to double her peace footing or rather more, Russia calls on her to quadruple it. It will be seen that the demand is a very severe one. The military committee of the Diet was not unanimous in reporting in favour of the increase to a 12,000 maximum for the Finnish army, four peasant members voting for a limit of 10,000, but ultimately the 12,000 maximum was accepted by the estates. The committee also instructed the estates to insist on the maintenance of the principle that the Finnish troops should be stationed within their own provinces within the Grand Duchy. The Russian general staff proposal contains a stipulation to the effect that the Finnish troops may also be distributed in divisions and corps that are stationed out of Finland, and in the explanations it is further added that the Finnish drafts may be incorporated in other combinations of troops in case they are transferred from the Finnish to other military districts, and that may occur in time either of peace or of war. Against this, besides the legal and other objections already made, which prove this proposal to be entirely inadmissible, it may be pointed out that the stationing of troops in time of peace outside the borders of the country in which they were raised would result in military disadvantages and complications. It would complicate the working of the conscription system, and essentially delay the work of mobilisation, and increase its cost. The principle has already been admitted that the Finnish troops are bound to take part in the general defence of the empire outside Finland, and the estates propose that section 123 of the present law shall be amended so as to enact expressly that Finnish subjects are liable to the compulsory military service for the defence of the Russian empire and that they may be called to serve out of the country for that purpose. Finland can have no separate existence, so far as international questions, properly so called, are concerned. And it is thus a consequence of Finland's union with the empire that, in a political sense, Finnish troops can have no other object than Russian troops. If war breaks out, the enemies of Russia are the enemies of Finland, but it does not follow that in the employment of Finnish troops, special circumstances should not be taken into consideration. It goes without saying that the Finnish soldier will fight best when he is conscious that he is fighting for the defence of his own country. And if a war were to break out that called for measures of defence in Finland, it would be out of the question to use Finnish troops elsewhere. Therefore, the estates have felt it necessary, whilst asserting the general imperial liability of the Finnish army, to insert words in the proposed clause providing that Finnish troops should in time of war be used primarily for the defence of Finland, and that they should only be called on to assist in defending the empire when there is no likelihood of their being required for the former purpose, that is, when no attack on Finland is anticipated. This especially concerns the Landwehr, which can only be called out in time of grave danger and on some extraordinary emergency. It need hardly be said that if the alterations in the existing law now suggested are accepted and ratified, military service will be rendered in many respects more burdensome than at present. It is therefore necessary that the increased pressure should be applied gradually, and specially that the stipulations regarding the increased length of service 
should not be applied in the case of those whose term of service has already commenced under the old conditions, or who, having taken part in the balloting, have been declared exempt from service in the active army. Only such conscripts as have served their time in the active army should hereafter be transferred to the reserve. By way of summing up, the estates declare that the proposal for a military service law for the Grand Duchy of Finland, sent in along with the gracious proposition, cannot be accepted by the estates, and that the gracious proposition concerning the principles for the organisation and administration of the Finnish army, and the accompanying proposal for ordinances, have been found to have, in view of such alterations of the existing military service law, and of the general fundamental laws that the estates have found it impossible to agree thereto. That the estates, however, since his imperial majesty has, in the said gracious proposition, taken the initiative for a revision of the military service law for the Grand Duchy of Finland, bearing date December 27th, 1898, have on their part accepted and humbly submit to his imperial majesty for his sanction, the proposals that follow. Here follows the full text of the proposed new clauses, as altered in accordance with the principles explained above. The estates then proceed to explain that as these clauses can, according to the fundamental laws, be confirmed and issued only in literal agreement with the text adopted by the estates, and as, further, the military service law of 1878 remains in force until it is replaced or altered in the manner provided by the fundamental law by a new law on the subject they think it is their duty to propose that in the event of the decision of the estates in one or other particular not meeting with his imperial majesty's gracious approval the estates request that his imperial majesty should be pleased to have drawn up and presented to the estates a new gracious proposition for the reform of the Finnish military service law. In the matter of the education of officers too, the Russian committee had made recommendations which would have had the effect of destroying altogether the present system of education of Finnish officers, which is admittedly good. Everything is to give way to unification, and it was proposed that instruction in all military branches should in future be obtainable only in Russian establishments. This would at once tend to check the number of young Finlanders aspiring for commissions at the very moment when a material increase in their number was necessary. The estates, therefore, insist on the maintenance of the military cadet school at Friedrichshamen, which has recently been extended and which can, if necessary, be still further developed so as to meet all requirements. The Diet thus completes its examination from the professional point of view of the present military service law, in the light of the proposals of the Committee of the Russian General Staff, approved by the Minister of War, and placed before the Estates for their opinion. But that the Russian proposals utterly disregard constitutional practice and the guaranteed rights of the Finnish people is made clear, as is also the fact that this encroachment is not accidental but is part of a well-planned scheme for the unification and russification of the Grand Duchy. One of the worst features of this case is that the authors of these proposals, and of the accompanying documents, men high in office, do not scruple to suggest suspicions of the integrity of the former Finnish secretaries who possessed the confidence of the Tsars in whose service they passed their lives. When it is proved from the documents, statutes and imperial proclamations that the present military service law is a law passed by the estates and consequently one that cannot be altered except by the consent of the estates, the officials of the war office fall back on some imaginary trickery by which the Finnish Senate and the Finnish Secretary induced Count Milutin and the Tsar to assent to the act and to agree further to the making of its principal clauses paragraphs of a fundamental law. The estates attached so much importance to this matter as one going to the root of all possible good relations between Russia and Finland, that special attention was given to it by the Law Committee, and the Committee's report, a crushing refutation of the Russian charges or insinuations, is embodied in the humble reply, together with a number of other arguments on the purely constitutional side of the question. Most of these points, including the charges relating to the passing of the Act of 1878, have already been referred to in the earlier chapters of this book, 
but an outline of this portion of the report must be given in order to complete and conclude the reproduction of the substance of Finland's Grand Remonstrance. End of section 17. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.